At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We invite you to join us for our series, Good Morning, as we learn from the cries of Israel recorded in the book of Lamentations. Together, we'll discover the depth of God's love for us, even in seasons of suffering, and learn to take our sorrows to the Savior. All right, this morning, if you have a Bible electronic device, I want to encourage you to take it out and turn with me to the book of Lamentations. Lamentations, we're going to be in chapter four today uh, as we've been walking through this book the last several weeks. So I'll give you time to, to go there. Well, back in 1912, there was a famous ship. Its name was the Titanic. Has everyone heard of the Titanic ship? All right, everyone's heard of the Titanic ship. At that time in 1912, it was a modern marvel of construction. It was an engineering feat that had not been done up until that time. It was the largest, most luxurious passenger vessel of its time. And it was thought to be unsinkable. For in its design, it was designed with eight watertight compartments in the hull. It was designed to hold water in. As soon as if the boat was to begin to take on water, those compartments would seal themselves up and keep the boat afloat even though it took on water. People were amazed. Articles were written. Everyone thought this was an amazing ship. Even so much so, there's so much confidence in the unsinkableness of this ship that Philip Franklin, the vice president of White Star Line, the, the uh, creators or the developers of this ship, he said this. He says, we believe that the boat is unsinkable. One of the crew members, when asked by uh, a, news, um, a news outlet, was asked uh, what he thought about the ship. And this is what he said. He proclaimed, God himself could not sink this ship. The captain of the ship was so confident, he said this earlier in the year. He says, I've nev I never saw a wreck and never have been wrecked, nor was I ever in any predicament that threatened to the end in disaster. So you've got this unsinkable ship, you've got this super confident captain, and then you've got this amazing journey. But we all know how the story ends. We all know right now that the Titanic right now lays in broken pieces in the bottom of the Atlantic. And the question we must ask ourselves is how did this happen? How is it possible this unsinkable ship is now sunken? Well, in April 15, 1912, we know the Titanic collided with an iceberg during its long trip from Southampton, UK to New York City in the US. We're told from, from date logs and other things that the captain was traveling at a high speed in known dangerous waters when they hit an iceberg. The iceberg damaged the hull, and as these watertight compartments began to fill, there was a massive flaw in the design of these watertight compartments. For the tops of the walls of these watertight compartments didn't only extended a few feet above water level. So as one of the compartments began to sink or began to fill, the, the ship tilted and allowed the water to overflow into the next compartment, which allowed the water to overflow into the next compartment. And you can see this unsinkable ship met its fate. The ship also only had capacity for one-third of the capacity of the ship were their lifeboats for 
And on that day, 1,500 people died. This large, the largest ship that was ever made at the time encountered one of the biggest disasters in modern history. This was an epic disaster where nations mourn the tragic, tragic loss of life, and it was overwhelming. When the unthinkable happens, it should cause us to pause and ask ourselves, how could this happen? You know, I'm so thankful as we've been walking through this book of Lamentations that God gives us a category for dealing with pain and for dealing with tragedy in our lives. The category that God gives us is lament. Lament is the gift from God so that we can walk through seasons of pain and suffering. And as we've learned through this series, our definition of lament is lament is a prayer and pain that leads to trust. God is big enough for us to bring our deepest pains to us. And he wants to, over time, to, to deal with our pain and heal our hurts. And today we're continuing our series entitled Good Morning, Taking Our Sorrow to the Savior. We come to chapter 4. And in chapter 4, we see another shift as Jeremiah is describing and lamenting the overthrow of Jerusalem and the deportation of God's people into captivity. Jeremiah closes in and moves to the streets of Jerusalem. He walks among the streets and he looks at this descent into ruin from the people that were God's people to now people that are God's enemy or appear to be God's enemy. So as he brings us to the streets, we, f- we see the pain on the individual faces. We experience the despair and we lament the loss of everything that was good. We see firsthand the effects of the fall on this mighty nation. And we see how sin has corrupted every area of life. We're going to see a couple things. We're going to make some observations as we walk through this passage about this descent into ruin. The first thing that that Jeremiah describes in this descent into ruin is that precious people become worthless. Look with me in verse 1. He says, how the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold is changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion worth their weight in fine gold, how they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hand. Jeremiah begins this chapter with the word how. It's as though he's, he's in a, a place of, of disbelief as he's, as he's looking at what lies before him. And he he actually says it twice. He says, how the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold is changed. It's as though Jeremiah is asking, how could this unthinkable thing happen? See, the reference that he uses to gold is kind of telling. For we know that gold itself cannot be tarnished. That gold itself cannot, the, the shine on it cannot grow dim. But Jeremiah describes it now as being tarnished. So the untouchable, the untarnishable nation is now tarnished and destroyed. The unthinkable has now just happened. And he's describing not only that the temple itself that that seemed to be indestructible is now destroyed, but he's going into the people themselves have been utterly destroyed. So in verse 2, he's saying it's the precious sons of Zion 
who were worth their weight in gold are now regarded as earthen pots. Zion's people, who used to be worth their weight in gold, are now regarded as waste. This is a deep descent into ruin. And God's people are seeing firsthand the price of disobedience. Even though they lived most of their lives thinking that they were untouchable, that they were invincible, they didn't heed the warnings that God had sent them through the prophets. And I want us today, just for a moment, to pause and to understand and to believe that even though we who are under grace no longer under the law, we are not untouchable from the discipline of the Lord. You are not untouchable from the discipline of the Lord. The Lord cares about how you live your life. The Lord cares about you seeking holiness and seeking and pursuing the Lord. The Lord cares about those things. And the Lord cares when we go off script and our hearts wander away from the Lord and we begin living for ourselves, living to find pleasure and other things in the things of this world. The Lord cares about that because we are his children. And just as we who are good parents discipline our kids when we see them going astray, God who loves us with a love that is even greater than any type of love that we can have disciplines those in whom he loves. Let us be careful to watch our lives so that we do not descend into ruin. Verse 4 continues to give us, describes even more about the, the fallout and the effects of this siege and this warfare on the people. It has caused a great famine in the land, and we, in this passage, uncover horrifically graphic content. Look in verse 3. Jeremiah writes, Even jackals offer their breasts. They nurse their young, but the daughter of my people has become cruel, like the ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives it to them. You know, human suffering is always hard to watch. But to see a child suffer is unbearable. And this is the imagery that we have here. Nursing babies are dying of starvation. The mothers of Jerusalem have become more cruel than the wild animals. Because they're not feeding their children. The tongues of these infants are sticking to the roofs of their mouths. They are dying of thirst, meaning that they are dehydrated. And they might not even be able to cry anymore because they're in a desperate situation. Kids throughout the whole city are in this predicament. There's no food. There's no one there to give it to them. Then he further describes this, this place of ruin. In verse 5, he says, Those who once feasted on the delicacies perish in the streets. Those who are brought up in the purple embrace ash heaps. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment. And now no hands were wrung for her. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. Their beauty of their form was like sapphire. But now... Their face is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the street. Their skin has shriveled on their bones and has become dry as wood. He shows this downfall of, of all humanity. That these, these people, that God's people that once dined in delicacy are now dumpster diving to seek to survive. 
Right now, they're walking through this intense time of enduring pain over the course of time. He wishes that their, um, that their disobedience was judged like Sodom. Remember, Sodom was destroyed in an instant. God came down with fire and the, the city was utterly destroyed. And Jeremiah's like, it would be easier, it would be better to be destroyed like that than to be destroyed as they have to endure the wrath of God over the season of time where they, this pain is excruciating pain is, destro is destroying them over this slow time. Verses seven and eight speak to the transformation of their bodies. They once were, were strong and they once had good skin and all of this and now their bones are shriveled and they look dry as wood. Verse nine, he goes on, he says, happier were the victims of the sword than victims of hunger who wasted away, pierced by the lack of fruits of the field. Again, he, he says it would be better to be, to be killed by the sword because again, your death is instant. But what's taking place is death is being dragged out through hunger. And then in verse 10, he says, the hands of the compassionate woman have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. We have a horribly graphic picture here that gives us and shows us the depths to which sin, sin corrupts. Not only are children dying in the mother's arms, but children are dying at the hands of their cannibalistic mothers. This is God allowing the consequences of sin to catch up with his people. This is a side of God that we don't ever want to see. This is a side of life that we want to shy away from, that we want to look away from, because this is deplorable. But what we need to understand is that sin has dire consequences that might not always feel that way immediately. You see, the problem with sin is that sin always offers fleeting pleasure, but that blocks our view of future consequences. Right? It's this immediate pleasure. We, we think that a sin is isolated in and of itself, that if I just do this one little thing and I get pleasure for myself for this moment, what happens is sin blinds us of the fact of future consequences. Because what we see here, even in the people of Israel, is they didn't just turn from God in an instant. It was a slow fade. In an instant, they gave themselves over to the pleasure of sin and the disobedience of God. And that pleasure led them to another layer of disobedience and then to another layer of disobedience and to another layer of disobedience and to another layer of disobedience. And you can see what's happening as they're giving themselves away. They're moving further and further away from God. And as they move further and further away from God, they're away from the protection of God. And then the consequences from their sin begin to, to, to level itself out in their lives. We can go through life and feel immune, immune to the cancer of sin. But here we see the disaster of sin. And it doesn't normally come just after the act of one rebellion. But as we slowly give ourselves away, we then come to a time where we find ourselves in utter ruin. As we look at this passage today, it's hard for us to imagine life like Jeremiah describes it. But if we're really honest with ourselves, all we really need to do is open up our eyes and we can see that we live in a world that's not much different. 
we see and are feeling the consequences now of generational sin. We're seeing in our, in our country and our culture this unprecedented time of this license to sin and even this legalization of sin. Where to, to speak against sin is becoming illegal. Where we live in a world where the precious things are now in ruin. We live in a world where innocent children are aborted and murdered for the sake of convenience. We're not too far. Let us not, let us not judge scripture to say how could they live like that when we ourselves are living in a culture like that. And I'm not saying, and, and, and that we look at this and, and we have to think, what made these women want to boil their children and eat them? Were they evil? I think they were misguided. They were, they were so confused. They couldn't, there was no one there to lead them towards truth. And so they were confused. And so they were doing the only thing that they saw naturally in their lives. And I have to believe even mothers today that have chosen to abort their babies aren't evil. As, I, as I've talked with women that have made that difficult choice of looking in their eyes and they're, there's not an ev- they're not seeking to do evil. They were just in a place in their life where they didn't realize they had options. And someone kept telling them over and over and over again, this is the only way, this is the only way, this is the only way. We live in a world that is so deeply divided in a world that's so full of hate. There's a massive departure from God's design in almost every area of life. In our world, there's a massive departure against God's design for marriage. There's a massive departure from God's design as we look at gender, as we look at identity. As I said, this this world no longer wants to say, hey, this is right and this is wrong, but we we want to legalize anything that's wrong. Anything that's outside of God's design, we want to say that it's okay because it makes me feel good. And then to uphold God's standard is to become illegal. We have become so morally lax that it's impacting every area of life. And if we're really honest with ourselves this morning, we're living on the streets of destruction in much the same way that Jeremiah was. Turn on the news. Open your eyes and walk down the street. We see death, decay, and destruction all over the place. And I believe that we should take a proper response just as Jeremiah does. We should lament these things. We should lament the hate in the world today. We should lament the confusion in the world today. We should lament the pride that is in the world today. We, of all people who can see these things, have the avenue, have the vehicle to go before our our brothers and sisters to the God of the universe and lament these things. God, should it, it, may it not be. But what we see here, and I, I, think, I, I think what's happened even in our Christian culture is that we've lost the fear of God. That, that we think as though that God's grace is there, which it is, and God's mercy is there, which it is. But God loves you enough to not allow you to, to wallow in your sin. He's gonna bring you back because he loves you. 
No one is above God's law and no one is above failing or falling. None of us are unsinkable ships. All of us are traveling at a high speed, uh, high speed in dangerous waters where at any moment an iceberg can hit us and derail us completely. And if we don't have the power of God living inside of us, we will find our fate at the bottom of the Atlantic. This is the message of Jeremiah today. But he goes on. And we have to ask ourselves the question, what has caused this great descent into ruin? And we see this in verse 11 through 16. And Jeremiah is teaching us that idolatrous leaders lose God's protection. Look at me in verse 11. He says, The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger and he kindled a fire on Zion that consumed its foundation. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor any other inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. This was for the sins of their prophets and the iniquities of their priests who shed in the midst of her blood the righteous. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away, unclean, people cried at them. Away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitives and wanderers. People said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. The Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests. No favor to the elders. What has caused all of this pain and suffering? It's because the leaders of God departed from God. You see, inside the nation of Israel, inside the people of God, he gave them different structures for leadership. He gave them three main roles. There was the role of the prophet, there was the role of the priest, and the role of the king. Those three roles were, were given to the people of God to give them leadership. You see, the prophet was given so that they, the, the words of God can be communicated to the people of God. So the people could know what the Lord required of them and what the Lord wanted them to do. So the prophet was the go-between. God also gave his people the priests. The priests were the ones that were to offer the sacrifices and the ones that were to, to bring intercession to God for the people. And then we have the kings. The kings were given by God to his people to lead them, to provide for them, to, to offer a sense of security and a sense of protection. And the king was the one that was supposed to follow and carry out God's orders. You see, when, when the nation of Israel lived in, in equality with all of those, those three roles, uh, equally seeking the Lord, we see that the nation of Israel thrived. The nation of Israel grew. But then we also see that God gave them those threefold uh, structures for leadership to help keep each other accountable. So if the, if the king was, was beginning to lead God's people away to worship other gods, the prophet would step in and say, God has told me. God would come with a message to the prophet to tell the king, don't go that way. Or if the priests began uh, doing their own thing and, and trying to, to create uh, sacrifices that were outside of God's design, the prophet could speak into it or the king could speak into it. And so God had given them the structure by his design. But we see now what is taking place and we see this carrying out in chapter four, that the nation is falling because the leaders failed. They failed to carry out their their roles. The kings didn't carry out their wars. The princes didn't carry out their role. The prophets and the priests and even the elders were being chastised by God. Oh, it's so important 
that we learn the power of mourning and lamenting the fall of leaders. You know, as we've been walking through this series, I want to just kind of recap it real quickly. As we, we started out, we looked at the, how to lament in general. How do, we, how do we lament and how we grieve in sorrow? And then we looked at what does it look like to corporately lament? How do we lament as the people of God? And then we looked at how do we personally lament? When we fall in and we fail, how do we bring our own laments to the Savior? And last week we looked at how do we lament injustice? <coughs> when we look at the things of this world, how do we lament injustice? And today we're looking at how do we lament failed leaderships? When leaders submit to God, peace always follows. But when leaders go outside of God's leadership, pain and suffering always follow. You know, as we look at our culture and we look at like what's happening in our American culture, I think one of the, the biggest things that <clears throat> sociologists are, have identified is this problem of the absent father. They call it the father factor. And right now in America, 19.7 million children are living in a home without their biological dad. So that's, that's approximately one in four homes in America don't have a father in place. And, and what sociologists are looking at and, and, and uh, what their cultural experts are looking at is how those issues of not having fathers in the home present are, are wrecking our society. And they've come up with some of these statistics. Children in homes without fathers are four times greater risk of experiencing poverty. They're seven times more likely to become pregnant as a teen. They're more likely to have behavioral problems. They're two times greater risk of infant mortality. They're more likely to go to prison. They're more likely to commit a crime. They're more likely to face abuse and neglect. They're more likely to abuse drug and, drugs and alcohol. They're two times more likely to suffer from obesity. And they're two times more likely of dropping out of high school. So as we look at God's design for the family, this is the bedrock of society is the family. This is the way God has made it. And even inside the family, God has given leadership structures and God has called fathers to be leaders of their homes. In many ways, God has called fathers to take on those roles of prophet, priest, and king. Right? As, a, as a father, the father's role is to, to know the word of God, to devour the word of God so that the father can speak life into his children. The father is, is to be the king in the way of providing and protecting and leading the family. The father is the one that is the priest that is to go to the father on behalf of the child and be praying for the child. Seeing the child's struggles and saying, Lord, please intercede and help this child. Fathers, on this Father's Day, I want you to realize and remind you of the important role that you play in your family. It's a paramount role. You are the primary influencer and the developer, primary influencer and the primary establisher of your children's faith. Being a good father is much more than just providing for them. We're called to model for them. Model for our kids a walk with, not a perfect walk, but a walk with the Lord. Like a dynamic walk with the Lord where we're constantly pointing our kids back to Jesus. Where we ourselves are seeking to obey God and to follow him and we find our delight in him. 
Dads, if you're here and you, your family's young, start now. Again, remember, you're the primary shaper of their faith. You may not even know what that looks like. You, you may not even have a great example from your father. You're like, okay, I want to do this. I just don't know how. Well, that's where the church comes in. We're here to help you. We're here to come alongside you and teach you and help you see how you can teach and train your kids in the ways of the Lord. But really, I, I can give you quickly some things. First, as a father, make church attendance a priority. Make it a priority. Don't send the wife and kids, but come with your family. Make it a priority. Worship with your family when, when possible. Second, read the Bible together. Read the Bible together. And this can look different in many different ways. One of the things that we do in, in my house or used to do now that kids are driving themselves to school is we would take the, the drive into school together and we would just listen to the word of God on, on um, MP3. We'd listen to it and I'd say, hey, what do you guys think about that? And then they would share some comments or some ideas. It wasn't like this deep devotional time where we got all together in a holy huddle and with the spirit of God suspended upon me like a dove. It wasn't like any of that. But we were bringing the word of God before our kids. So make, read the word of God. Make priority coming to church. And the third is pray. Pray for your kids. Pray with your kids. I'll tell you what, those are the three simple things that you can do that will help begin that journey towards faith and discipleship. Maybe you've got older children and maybe you're like, well, it's too late for me. How can I now, I live my life crazy and now I'm like walking with the Lord. How do I still encourage my kids? Well, this is how you do it. Spend time in God's word. Read God's word. Be around God's people and then allow that which God is pouring into you to overflow into those other relationships. Maybe you were going through a rough season of life and you are a father that has abandoned his kids. Seek forgiveness from the Lord and seek reconciliation. It's a great way in which we take the love of the Lord and move in towards reconciliation. Those are super important things. But lastly, I want us to see the end comes with a ray of hope. There's always a ray of hope. This has not been a super encouraging sermon so far, and I understand that. But there always comes with a ray of hope. So let's look at verse 17 through the end. He says, our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watched for a nation which would not save. They dogged our steps so that they could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near. Our days were numbered for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles in the heavens. They chased us to the mountains. They lay in wait for us in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils, the, Lord anointed, the Lord's anointed was captured in their pits, of whom we said, under his shadow we shall live among the nations. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom. You who dwell in the land of us, but to you also the cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourselves bare. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer, but your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, will be punished. He will uncover your sins. Here what we see is the, 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 the destruction that Judah was looking for hope in other places. And, and God was saying, no other help's coming. There's no other help. You can't look anywhere else but look to him himself. 
But then there, at the end of this devastating poem comes a ray of hope in verse 22. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. There's a promise from God this affliction will not end forever. If we were to mirror through the laments and lamentations and then the looking at Isaiah in chapters 44 through 55, it's almost as though everything that was lamented in lamentations gets restored in Isaiah. The promise of restoration. God always gives the promise of restoration. God always gives the promise of his mercy. Though there's sin and yes, there is punishment, God always has his mercy and a love available. Even though as Israel's walking through this dark season, there was hope on the horizon. But the truth that we look today from God's word is that without God, people perish. That's the big idea that I hope we're able to see that without God, people perish. With God, you have hope. Without God, you have no hope. You see, as created beings, we, we naturally will drift towards ruin. We don't drift towards holiness. We don't drift towards the Lord. We drift away from the Lord in three main areas. I'm going to share these really quickly. First, we drift in the area of faith. Instead of living by faith and trusting in God's provision, we choose to live by sight. And we choose to walk in our own wisdom, in our own experience. And when we do that, that's a drift away from the Lord that absolutely leads to ruin. Second, we fill ourselves with the wrong food. We feed ourselves with the wrong food. Instead of filling ourselves with the word of God, we fill ourselves with the things of this world. And that's a departure. And the last mistake that we make is we think that we can fix ourselves. See, we're all born with an understanding that there's something wrong and we spend the majority of our life trying to fix it. We try to fix it through religion. We try to fix it through good deeds. We try to fix it through changing our behaviors, but it's impossible to fix ourselves. If left alone, all we produce is ruin and everything that we touch becomes ruin. But there's hope. You see, Jesus came to rescue us from our ruin. He came to rescue us from ourselves. In the midst of our mess, Jesus comes to bring peace. Jesus comes to bring peace with God and peace with others by dying the death that we deserve, by taking our punishment in, in, on himself so that we can have the peace of God. And when we give our lives over to God, not only uh, give our lives over to God through Christ, not only are we given forgiveness, but we're also giving the power to obey. God gives us the power to be that godly dad. God gives us that power to be that godly leader. God gives us the power to, to hear his words of truth, and then he gives us the power to obey it so we don't have to live in our flesh. So today, as we come to our time of close, be reminded that human leaders fail and we fail. Without God in our lives, there is no grace. It leads to ruin. But if we fail, know that there is grace if we are in Christ. And though human leaders fail, human fathers fail, we can serve a God that will lead us And he will never 
fail. So if today you have been harmed by a leader, lament it. Bring that pain to the Savior. Don't hold on to it anymore. And may, maybe that leader that harmed you, maybe it, was a, maybe it was a father, maybe it was someone else in your life that has really scarred you. Don't stay in that place of pain. Instead, bring it to the Savior and allow him to heal you, even if that leader is not willing to ask for forgiveness. You can still experience that freedom. Or maybe you're a leader that has failed. Maybe you are here today and the Spirit has just been so hard on you today because you realize that you have blown it. Well, guess what? You have breath in your lungs, you still have a chance. Go to the Lord with your brokenness and even in your sin, confess it to him and allow his forgiveness to wash over your heart and then allow him to give you the power to seek reconciliation. You see, today we are again reminded we live in a world of brokenness. But God gives us the power to live at peace God gives us the power to live in a place of his mercy and his rest. And we are people of hope. So today, I don't know where you are. Maybe you're here today and you need to come to the Lord and just give him your life. Maybe you've been struggling. You've been trying to do it on your own. Well, today, let today be the day of salvation. You finally just lift your hands and say, Lord, I'm all in. Forgive me and come be my Lord and Savior. Or maybe you just your response today is just to lament. Lament the brokenness that you see. Lament the brokenness that you feel. Don't hold it inside. But as we sing this last song, maybe just lament it to the Lord. Or maybe just as a father today, you are like, okay, now I know what I need to do. Maybe your prayer today is, Lord, help me be faithful to carry out the mission that you've called me to. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your words of truth today. Father, it is hard to pull back the curtain of life and to see the destructive nature of sin. Father, so many times we want to avoid it, so many times we want to ignore it. It's easier to go through life and to, to be blind to the cancer of sin and say, that's not a problem, it's not a big deal. But Father, we see that you care about it. That your desire is that we live holy lives because when we live holy lives, we have a deeper fellowship with you. And as a loving father, you have pursued us, you have chased after us, and you have done everything necessary to bring us back to you. Our only response is to surrender. So Father, I pray that that would be our response today. We would stop living our lives for ourselves and from our own strength. But that we would lift our hands and say, Jesus, just do it in me. Father, I'm also aware that days like today can bring up pains from the past and highlights the brokenness, sometimes even in our own families. Father, I pray today you would help us today to bring that pain to you. And as we do that, allowing you to minister to our hearts, minister to our deep pains, 
because you are a good father that cares for us and wants to walk with us through our sufferings. And that you even want to lift our heads when we can't lift our heads ourselves. So Father, we rest in the hope and in the joy of knowing you are a good father. As we sing this song together, Father, continue to move in us and help us to do what you desire for us to do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself today.